Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here. Excited to be with you uh, again here in Romans 6. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in uh, Genesis. Kidding. Romans 6, 15, going through verse 19. While you're turning there, I want to start with a little illustration. So my wife and I, Katie, before we go to bed, one of the things that we love to do is we love to watch Netflix, okay? And one of the things we love watching on Netflix is prison shows, all right? I don't know why. Maybe we're just sick, twisted people, but we're watching all these prison shows and Locked Up and World's Toughest Prisons and all of these kind of things. Now, one, we just think that they're interesting, but two, one of the reasons I like watching these is because I'm absolutely convinced that at some point in my life, I will probably have to go to prison, okay? That's not a confession. Uh, I haven't killed anybody. I'm not involved in racketeering, whatever that is. But for some reason, I have this feeling that maybe in the future, uh, I will have to go to prison possibly for preaching the gospel, okay? Uh, if you don't believe me, uh, in some places in New York City, or in some places in New York already, you can be fined up to $250,000 for not using a transgendered person's preferred pronoun. Uh, a bill was recently put forward in California that would uh, allow you to go to jail for a year for doing that. And so it's not here yet, but eventually these kinds of things are coming. And so in the meantime, I'm getting ready to go to prison. All right. So I'm doing my pull-ups and I'm trying to figure out which gang I need to join. And Katie will come outside and I'm like sharpening a toothbrush. And she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, research. Uh, I'm making a shank. And so uh, in getting ready for this, uh, I put together some statistics uh, regarding prison. Now this has a point, by the way. I'm not just being weird. So bear with me. It has a point with uh, this text. But I want to go ahead and give you some statistics here just to show you prison. Not as much fun as you would think. So, first of all, there are 2.3 million people in prison in the United States. 2.3 million. There are 13 million Americans that are arrested every year. 13 million. That's more than the population of New York and Los Angeles combined, okay? The highest age grouping of people in prison is ages 36 to 40, which I found interesting. I assumed it would be just a bunch of people in their early 20s, age 36 to 40. 93% of inmates are male, okay? Despite what culture would say, there's a bunch of differences between men and women, and one of those differences are that men tend to be a bit more aggressive. 80% of people who go to prison end back up in prison within five years. So there's only a 20% success rate, all right? 80% go back within five years, okay? And not only that, not only are there a lot of prisons and a lot of prisoners, but life in prison is not great. Let me give you some statistics here. 50% of inmates have a diagnosed psychological disorder. So you're in there with people that are crazy, okay? It's not great. More than 70,000 prisoners are sexually assaulted every year in the U.S. More than 70,000 people are raped in prison over just one year in the U.S. You can get murdered in prison, people can order a hit against you, you can be stabbed, you can be strangled, all kinds of terrible things can happen. If you act up, you can be put in solitary confinement. You can be thrown in the hole, okay? Solitary confinement is currently considered torture by the UN, City, uh, the UN Committee on Torture, and the suicide rate is five times as high for those put in solitary than in the general prison population. Not only that, not only are you looking over your shoulder to not get attacked, not only do you have to go to solitary maybe, not only are there all these terrible things, but the food is not great. You're not eating lobster and filet mignon typically in prison, okay? What a lot of prisons have done is they have moved to only giving two meals a day to help save money, and what it's done is it's caused a lot of prisoners to be extra angry because they're extra hungry, all right? In one particular jail in Georgia, inmates were only given two meals per day. One inmate lost 90 pounds in less than six months. The other inmates were so hungry, they resorted to eating toothpaste and toilet paper, okay? Now, here's why I say all of that. Imagine that you commit some crime. You, you steal, you murder, whatever it is. 
you go to prison. And then finally, after all of that, after looking over your shoulder, after being put in the hole, after eating terrible food, you finally get to step back out into freedom. And you realize for the first time again, I can go where I want. I can have good food. I can sleep in my own bed. Is your first thought, man, I can't wait to go back to prison. That's how the Apostle Paul sees sin in the book of Romans. What will happen constantly throughout the book of Romans is people will say, well, now that I'm saved by grace, maybe I should sin some more. Or if uh, sin brought about more grace, maybe more sinning will bring about more grace. And what the Apostle Paul has to say is, listen, you're misunderstanding sin. Sin is something that enslaves you. Sin is something that's terrible. Sin is something that makes your life awful. It's not a freedom. Freedom, biblically, is not the freedom to sin. It's the freedom to do what's righteous. And so what the Apostle Paul will do in this text is answer this question. If we're no longer under law, we're no longer under this thing that enslaved us to sin, should we go on and keep sinning? And his answer is, that's like going back to prison after you've been set free. So before we get into verse 15, let's pray, and then we will get into the text. Almighty God, we thank you that you're good and that you're loving and that you care for us. And I just ask uh, right now, that you would protect us and guide us. We thank you for your word. Uh, I pray for just a, uh, a clarity of thought and a clarity of speech, and we'll ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, verse 15. Let's get into this text. Now that we're all started with some cheery prison statistics, everybody's happy. I hope you have a good summer. Happy July. Verse 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Here's a question that the Apostle Paul is going to ask in this text. Does grace enable sin? Does grace enable sin? Earlier in Romans, he said, shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Meaning, should we sin to get more grace? Here he's going to say, should we sin because we've been given grace? It's a similar but slightly different argument, and his answer is going to be absolutely not. But let's work through this text. First of all, the phrase, what then? That is a reference to verse 14. So you see that first phrase, what then? Look up to verse 14. We're going to throw it on the screen. Romans 6, 14 says this, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul's going to take that idea of not being under law, but being under grace, and now he's going to elaborate on it. Okay? He's going to elaborate on it. What then, he says, are we to sin because we are not under law? Let's explain what this does and doesn't mean. As a Christian, this does not mean because you are not under law that you can do whatever the heck you want, that there are no rules in the Christian life. What he means here is that you are no longer under Old Testament given to Israel mosaic stipulations. That's what he means. Let's be clear. We're still under the Old Testament. It's what Jesus would call the Bible, okay? It tells us who God is. It prophesies a Messiah. It lets us see the heart and character of God. But the part of the Old Testament, the mosaic law, which gives you all these rules and stipulations, you as a Christian are no longer under. But that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want because you have a new master in Christ and you have to be obedient to Christ. So by saying we're not under law, he means you're not under Old Testament Mosaic law. He doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want. The example that we've given a lot of times here at Parkway is this. Imagine that you're driving in Texas and you're going 70 miles an hour and you cross the border into Oklahoma and you look at the speed limit sign and it says 70 miles an hour. You might assume that you're still in Texas. Especially if you're from Texas, you just assume everywhere's Texas. Texas just owns everything, right? But you're driving past, you're going 70 miles an hour in Texas, crossover in Oklahoma, the speed limit says 70 miles an hour. You might assume that you're still in Texas because the speed limit sign is the same, but are you in Texas? You're not. You're under a new jurisdiction. You're under a new rule. There are laws in Oklahoma, despite what you might think, and you are now under those laws, okay? So in the Old Testament, it would say things like, don't murder, 
In the New Testament, it would say, don't murder. But the reason you don't murder has changed because you have a different jurisdiction. Okay? Does that make sense? So if you were to go to a Jew in the Old Testament and say, should you murder? They would say no. And if you said why, they would say, because the Ten Commandments tell me not to murder. If you go to a Christian in the New Testament and you say, should I murder? They will say no, because they love Jesus, and Jesus has commanded us to love others, which includes not murdering them, okay? So it doesn't mean there's no rules. What it means is we're not under the Old Testament Mosaic law. We're under what the Bible would call the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 21, this is what Paul says. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Notice that Paul, there are times Paul will follow Old Testament ritual and law for evangelism. That's what he says by saying, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Now look at this next remark. This is powerful. Though not being myself under the law. Meaning, when I hang out with Jews, I don't eat a pork sandwich because I don't want to offend them. I can eat a pork sandwich, just not around them if I'm trying to evangelize. And then he says that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. Now look at this next remark. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. He's saying, I'm not under the Old Testament Mosaic law, but sometimes for the purposes of evangelism, I will follow those things as not to offend my Jewish brothers. But when I hang out with Gentiles, I can have a pork sandwich. I'm not free to do anything. I'm still under the law of Christ, but I'm no longer under Old Testament Mosaic law, okay? Verse 15 again. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace by no means? That phrase, by no means, in Greek is one of the strongest ways to negate something in Greek, okay? So in Greek, you can just say no. It's a Greek word, ooh, or may, depending on the context. You can add multiple no's. You can say no, no, all right? But one of the strongest ways to say no in Greek is to say this phrase in Greek. It's may genoita, May genoita. It means no, not at all. Don't, don't even think about that. Let me say it in Spanish. No, right? It's, it's strong. It's really strong, okay? In fact, I don't actually like the translation by no means. That's not strong enough for us in English. There are times in a staff meeting where I will suggest something that is so stupid that Jeff will just kind of look at me. He'll kind of look at me and furrow his brow. And though he hasn't said anything, his eyes are saying, May Genoita, right? So he's like, how do, we, how do we get more people at Parkway? And I'm like, let's give out free hot dogs. And he'll just kind of look. He's like, why don't we just keep preaching the Bible? I think people will come if we just preach the Bible. I'm like, yeah, that's good too. But that's what it means. What Paul is saying here is, wait, shall you sin because you're no longer under God but law but under grace? And he just kind of looks at him. That's like saying, am I free to go back to prison? Am I free to enslave myself to something that was awful and brought shame and evil and condemnation? If you think that, then you don't understand grace is what he's going to say. Verse 15 again. What then? We talked about that. Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? We talked about that. Now look at this last part here, but under grace. Okay. Listen, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want biblically. Freedom is the ability to do what's right. Freedom is the ability to do what's good. Think back to that prison analogy. Freedom is not the ability to go back to prison. Freedom is the ability to stay away from prison. It's the ability to uh, work a job and not commit crimes and these kind of things. That's freedom. Christian freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. It's the ability to do what's good because in following Christ and doing what's good, that's where you find your ultimate joy anyway. That's where you find your ultimate joy anyway, okay? Here's what I want you to know about grace. We're no longer under law, which brought condemnation because we couldn't follow it. 
We're under a new master, grace. And here's what you need to know. Grace is the solution to fighting your sin wherever you struggle, okay? So imagine a spectrum for a second. Imagine a scale. On one end of the scale, you have licentiousness. Everybody know what licentiousness is? You hear the word license. It means you don't care about the rules. You'll do what you want to do. On the other end of the spectrum is legalism. Legalism is where you love the rules and you try to use the rules to make God love you, okay? Both of those things are sin. Both of those things are dangerous. We have a tendency to think that legalism is somehow less dangerous than licentiousness. I actually think legalism is more dangerous than licentiousness because in legalism, you think God's asking you to perform, okay? The solution to fighting sin. By the way, everybody falls on this spectrum. Everybody in here would say, yeah, I'm more the guy that's like, I don't care about the rules. Don't tell me what to do. Others of you are like, man, I love me some rules. I wish there were more rules. I wish the Bible had a bunch more rules in it, right? The way that you fight both of those extremes, the way you fight both of those sins is through grace. That's the solution for both. We know that if somebody's legalistic, that they need to walk in grace. They need to realize they can't earn their salvation. Their righteousness is given to them by Christ. We understand that. But listen, the person that walks in sin, the solution for them is not more rules. The solution for them is grace as well. You never pull the reins on grace. There's actually no such thing as abusing grace. There's misunderstanding grace, which can lead to sin. But if you're truly understanding grace, it brings about righteousness from both sides. The person who walks in legalism doesn't understand God's grace. But the person who walks in licentiousness doesn't understand God's grace either. But it's grace that is the solution to fighting your sin wherever you fall on that spectrum. Wherever you fall on that spectrum. Let me tell you a little story. So I've got a buddy that... uh, <clears throat> he doesn't go here, but he's a friend of mine, good friend of mine. And there was a season in his life where he was really, really struggling and very tempted to commit adultery. Okay? So he called me and said, Zach, I'm struggling with my wife. We're having a lot of fights. And for whatever reason, I just keep thinking about committing adultery. I think I might actually do it. I'm having girls flirt with me at work. I'm having this happen. And so I said, okay, let's meet. So we sat down and we talked. And I said, man, what's going on? And he said, I just feel really tempted. I feel like I'm going to cheat on my wife, that I'm going to leave her. Uh, All these other things are going on. And I said, when you're hit with that temptation, what do you think about? And he said, well, I, I typically think about how awful that would be. He said, I think what kind of person could call themselves a Christian and do that? What kind of person could think, yeah, I could see my kids on, you know, every other weekend and sometime in the summer. He's like, those are the thoughts that I'm having. And I said, how does that work? When those temptations hit you and you run to that guilt and self-condemnation, has that helped? Has that helped you fight the temptation? And he said, no, it makes me feel worse. And I said, here's what I want you to do. The next time you're tempted to cheat on your wife, I want you to think this thought, that even if I were to cheat on her, Jesus' love for me wouldn't change at all. Even if I were to do this, Jesus' love and his commitment to me wouldn't change at all. You see, sin is fueled by guilt. What I was trying to do is to get this guy to run to the cross before he sinned instead of just after. He ended up not cheating on his wife, by the way, okay? Now, when I say that, it sounds scandalous. Are you saying that adultery is okay? No, it's awful. It's a terrible sin. What I'm saying is the way you fight sin, though, the way you fight temptation is by grace. It's running to the cross. Imagine a wedding where in the middle of the wedding, the husband takes the wife's face, holds it in his hands, and looks her in the eye and says, I will not divorce you. Does she then go, yes, now I'm going to do a bunch of cheating? She is so humbled by his love and commitment, it makes her want to cheat less, not more. 
What has happened in conversion is Jesus has taken your face and looked you in the eye and has said, I will not divorce you. And the more you understand that, it encourages you to walk in righteousness, not in sin. Grace is the solution to fighting sin. You're not going to stay away from sin by giving yourself a list of do's and don'ts. You're not going to stay away from sin by trying to beat yourself up and guilt yourself into it. How could I do this? That kind of idea. You're not going to stay away from sin by staying away from sinners. You're going to stay away from sin by staying close to Jesus. And you're going to stay away from sin by resting in grace. Grace properly understood never leads to sin. Grace properly understood brings a humility that brings about obedience. Brings about obedience. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Verse 16 just said several things that are very profound. Here's the first one. Ready? Everyone is a slave to something. Period. There is no not being a slave. Human autonomy is a unicorn. It is a leprechaun. It does not exist. You either are a slave to Jesus or you're a slave to the devil. You're either a slave to righteousness or you're a slave to sin. There is no middle ground. There is no gray. You either belong to team Jesus or you're by default on team Satan, and that's it. But everyone is a slave to something. Jesus says this in John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What verse 16 is saying is, whoever your master is, is what you will do. If your master is sin, you'll walk in death, you'll walk in sin, you'll walk in unrighteousness. If your master is Christ, if your master is righteousness, you will walk in righteousness. We have a tendency, let's do a little theology real quick. We have a tendency to define freedom or free will as the ability to do whatever we want, right? We have a tendency to define it as the ability to choose something's opposite. So we think that freedom is the ability to choose something's opposite. So if I offer you a hamburger, you can say yes or you can say no. If I offer you a new van, I don't know, you can say yes or you can say no. That's how we think of freedom. We have a tendency to think of freedom as the ability to choose something's opposite, okay? I don't believe that that's the type of freedom the Bible gives us. I believe that the type of freedom the Bible gives us is the ability to act according to one's nature. We are only free to do what we by nature can do. I'm not free to walk off of a building and not fall because I'm not a bird. That's not my nature, okay? And in fact, I push it further. I would say even God is not able to do his opposite. He can't sin. He can't lie. He can't cease being God. In fact, there are things I can do that God can't do. I can lie. I can be evil. I can worship something false. I can do things God can't do. But listen, those things I'm doing are not strengths. They are weaknesses, It's like saying, are you strong enough to be weak? Sin and the ability to choose what's evil is not freedom. It's like the freedom to go back to prison. It's just slavery. It's just pain. Freedom, biblically, is the ability to choose what's good. God is the most free being in the universe because he can only choose what's good. He decides what's good. Freedom, biblically, is the ability to act according to your nature. So when you're lost, your nature is sinful, so you freely choose to sin. When God changes your nature in salvation... You are now free to walk in righteousness. But notice, the nature precedes what you're able to do, okay? The nature precedes what you're able to do. The reason I say this is we have a tendency to think that freedom, that that God is like this cosmic killjoy. He's not allowing us to do all these fun things we want to do, and if we didn't have God, we would be free to do that. And the Bible's going to say every time you choose sin, you're only enslaving yourself. That's not real freedom. You're misusing the term freedom. 
in World War II with the Holocaust, over the entrance to a lot of the concentration camps, there was a very famous German phrase, all right? The phrase was Arbeit macht frei, okay? That means in German, work makes you free. So as you're going into Auschwitz or Birkenau or Treblinka or one of these concentration camps, you see this phrase that says, work makes you free. Do you see the great irony in that? Do you see how they're pitching this concentration camp as though it's a good thing, but really you just get starvation and gas chambers and working to death? They're using the word freedom there in a completely wrong sense. That is what the devil does. He takes words and he twists them. Freedom is not the ability to sin. That's going to the concentration camp. That's Arbeit Mach Frei. Freedom is the ability to walk in righteousness because you have a new master because you're no longer under law, but you're under grace, okay? You're under grace. And so verse 16 says, you have one of two masters, sin or obedience, and it leads to one of two results, death or righteousness. Verses 17 through 18. Now there's a contrast. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Let's break down this text. First, but thanks be to God. Notice that it is God that has saved us. Why does Paul turn to talk and give thanks to God? Because we were all in sin, and it is only by God's grace that he saved us anyway. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus wasn't lost. He found you because you were lost, and I was lost, okay? Thanks be to God who, though we were this, we're now something different. Look at the next phrase that you who were once slaves of sin. There's only two kinds of people in the world, ready? Current slaves of sin and former slaves of sin. That's it. We have to be careful as Christians that we don't get an us versus them mentality with lost people or an us versus them mentality with culture. And we have a tendency to just look down on people and think that they're crazy and awful and their sin's disgusting. And so we just kind of huddle in the church and just talk about our own holiness. You have to realize we were those people. Whatever the people you hate in your mind, that's who you were to God before salvation, okay? And we, were for, we are former slaves to sin. Other people are current slaves to sin, but we all know what that taste of slavery is like. So we get to go to people and not say, you need to be good like me. We get to go to people and say, I was once enslaved and I had no hope, and now I do. The same offer is extended to you. The same offer is extended to you. But thanks be to God, though you were once slaves of sin, now look at your new state, have become obedient from the heart. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Whereas the Mosaic law was written on tablets of stone and you couldn't keep it, now as a Christian, having the third person of the Trinity dwelling within you, the Holy Spirit, there's now that God's law written on the tablets of human hearts. When this text says that you're given a heart of flesh, it doesn't mean flesh in the, the sinful sense, like lust of the flesh. It means you're given a soft heart. You're given a human heart. That heart of stone has been taken out, and now you have a living heart. That's the idea. So there's something that's unique here. Not only have we moved from being under law, which led to condemnation, to under grace, but now we're actually able to walk in righteousness, which is all done by the Holy Spirit, because we have a new master. Whereas in the Old Testament, you have tablets of stone. Now God's law is written on tablets of human heart. Verse 17 again, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. What does that mean? To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Well, let, let me explain something theologically, and then I'll explain what verse 17 means. Christianity is primarily a doctrinal religion, 
not an experiential religion, okay? We're not all about being one with nature and the universe and, and Buddhism and all these kind of things. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a doctrinal religion. We're about facts. God is a trinity. Jesus died for our sins. He was resurrected. You're saved by faith in Christ alone. We're about facts. We're about doctrine. That's what Christianity is about. We're not about just squishy feelings. Your feelings are important, but they don't give you truth, okay? So when you become a Christian, you are handed down the once for all delivered to the saints gospel. There are no new Christianities. New Christianities are just recycled heresies. Biblically, we stand within a Christian tradition. Jesus promises that the gates of Hades will never overcome his church, and they never have. So I want to give you some passages that talk about the importance of when you become a Christian, having good doctrine, and then I'll explain what verse 17 means. Let me give you a bunch of passages. Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Deuteronomy 11.19, and talking about God's law, you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. It's almost like all you should be doing is talking Bible all the time. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments. Notice there's logic, there's thinking. Christianity is a, uh, something that engages your mind. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Romans 16.1, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Ephesians 4, 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by, uh, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's lack of theological knowledge, lack of knowing who God is and what he requires. 1 Timothy 4, 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. In giving the requirements of an elder, Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Jude 3, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So notice this. One of the fruits of the Spirit is correct doctrine. It's very important in God's eyes. God doesn't care about us just, your heart can't love what your head hasn't embraced. Okay? This is why we say that theology is the ceiling to your worship. They go together. Now, having said that, that's not the primary point of verse 17. Look at verse 17 again. It doesn't just say that doctrine was handed down to us, although that's true. It says this, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You were given over to this doctrine. Your master has changed from being sin and Satan because you couldn't follow the law. Your master has now become this doctrine. It has become Jesus. It has become the gospel. It makes an imprint on your life. You are like a warm ball of wax. And when you become a Christian, Jesus takes this ring of doctrine and he presses it on you and it makes this imprint on your life. It makes this imprint on your life. You've been handed over to this. You were handed over to sin. Now you're handed over to the gospel, to the preaching of the word, to good doctrine and to Christ. And the way you will grow in holiness is not by trying hard to not sin. Because when you're doing that, you're still not focusing on Jesus. The enemy doesn't care what your thoughts are about as long as it's not Jesus. The way you will grow in holiness throughout Romans 6 is by reshaping your mind to focus on Christ. Let me give you a little example. So, uh, before we had our first kid, I knew nothing about kids, okay? My wife, she was a professional nanny. She was crushing it. But for me, I had never changed a diaper. So we took a child safety class. Okay? We went and took a child safety class that was led by a nurse, and I 
way overdid it. That's how I do things in my life. Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And so I went to this class and I was intense. So I'm putting poison controls number in my phone. I'm raising my hand and asking outlandish questions. I literally asked, hey, if a snake bites your baby, do you need to cut open the wound and suck the poison out? And she said, are you that guy? Are you going to be that guy? That was her words. And I was like, what do you do? She's like, well, you don't stab your baby's leg and ingest poison. Instead, you just take your baby to the hospital. I was like, that's, that's a good point. Let me write that down, right? And then they gave us these little rubber babies that we had to practice CPR on. And I'm like crushing mine. I'm like, mm, its little eyeballs are popping out. I'm like, am I doing it? Am I keeping the baby alive? You pick it up. The head falls off just like a real baby. You got to put it back on. And so we're doing all this. We're getting ready. I thought the hardest part of being a parent would be changing diapers, okay? Now, by the way, let me be clear. I hate changing diapers. I still, to this day, sometimes will dry heave, okay? I'm like, hey, little baby. And I start doing this. Katie! You know, the baby's just laughing. I'm not laughing. I'm trying not to throw up on the baby, okay? But that has not been the hardest part. The hardest part for me of the parenting thing so far has been when they're really little and you're trying to feed them. That's been the hardest part. My wife can feed the baby. She's just fine. When I am trying to feed the baby, it's two in the morning, whatever. It's so difficult. Let me tell you why. Let me walk you through the process. You got a little baby and you've got, you know, whether it's breast milk or formula or whatever, and you're feeding the baby this bottle and this baby starts to drink it for about two sips and then the baby falls asleep. The baby never sleeps when you want it to sleep. You're exhausted. You're tired. You're just trying to get the baby to sleep so you can sleep. But the baby, as soon as you put the bottle in the baby's mouth, it falls asleep. And you need the baby to eat. So you got to wake up the baby. You don't shake it. We learned that in the class. You don't shake the baby. Instead, you take like a wet wipe or something. You wipe the face and the baby kind of wipes, wakes up. And then you feed the baby. And it takes like an hour because they are terrible at drinking. And so it takes like an hour. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, finally, we, we got it. And then all of a sudden, the baby spits up all the food and starts crying. Well, you've got to feed the baby again because if you put the baby down and it's got an empty tummy, it's going to cry and you're not going to get to sleep. And your only goal at this point in your life is to sleep. That's your only goal. That's all you want. That's all your hopes and dreams. And so you have this baby and the baby spits up. And so now you know it's going to be another hour. So you get more milk and you're trying to be nice. You're like, I love you. I do love you so much. And so you're nursing this baby or you're uh, feeding this baby. And, uh, and then finally, if the baby does take down all the, the, the liquid, you have to burp the baby. Okay. You have to burp the baby because if you don't, they will spit up. And if you're like me, causing you to spit up, okay? So you sit there and you try to burp them. And so I remember with both my kids, it would be two in the morning and I'm trying to burp this baby. I'm patting its back. Come on, baby, daddy needs to sleep. And every time I would try to burp the baby, it wouldn't burp, but I would. Every time. I'm not focusing on that. I'm just focusing on trying to burp the baby. And all of a sudden I'd be like, is that you? That's me. Ah, come on. Burp. And I was trying to do that. By simply focusing on this other thing, it had an effect on me. By focusing on something I wasn't focused on, it had naturally effect on me. I didn't have to think about me or me burping. I know this is a funny illustration. I'm just trying to keep you awake. It's the same way with walking in righteousness. If you make not sinning your Savior, if you just try to focus on keeping all the rules, you'll find that you break more of them. But instead, if you will just focus on Jesus and his mercy, and his love, and his grace, you'll find that you sin less, that you have a spiritual burp, if you will, all right? That's the idea. It is the theology that transforms our actions. The theology transforms our actions. You don't grow in holiness by just trying to grow in holiness. You grow in holiness by focusing on Christ, and he just does it, and he just does it through you, okay? Look at verse 18. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. We won't spend a lot of time here because he's just repeating what he's already said, which is simply this. Freedom to sin 
is actually slavery, and slavery to Christ is actually freedom. That's what this text is saying. Freedom to sin is actual slavery, and slavery to Christ is actual freedom. Verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Notice, by the way, that sin begets sin. That's not in the text. That just accidentally got copied on that slide. That's from my notes. Sorry. Notice that sin does beget sin. When you walk in lawlessness, it produces more lawlessness. That, though, is not the word of God. Everything else there is except for the parentheses. Those are my, uh, those are my notes there. So. so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Okay? So let's start with verse 19. What does it mean here? I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. What does that mean? What does that phrase mean? Here's what Paul is saying. He says, I realize that the slavery analogy is not perfect. I realize that we're human. I realize that we're broken. I realize that we misunderstand things. So don't draw the analogy at the wrong point, point, okay? Analogies, by the way, can often be twisted. Let me give you another example where Paul uh, clarifies this. Romans 3, 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Look at his little phrase here. I speak in a human way. He's saying, obviously, God can't be unrighteous, so I'm just using an analogy. Now, listen. When someone gives an analogy, Paul or otherwise, you have to draw the analogy at the correct point or you will misunderstand, okay? If you hear this word slavery and then all of a sudden you start jumping to the 1800s and the American slave trade and all of that, you're going to misunderstand the point of what Paul is making. Not only is biblical slavery very different than what we had in in more modern slavery, we've got a, a blog online that you can check out, but that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is the analogy has to do with moving under the reign of sin to being under the reign of grace in Christ. That's the analogy, okay? There's no such thing as a perfect analogy or else it would be that thing. Does that make sense? So what is like this chair right here? What is exactly like this chair? Nothing else. Even this chair is not exactly like this chair because this chair is over here. They weren't made at the same time. This one uses different cloth than that one. There's no such thing as a perfect analogy or it would be that thing. What Paul is saying is, as I'm giving this analogy of slavery, don't draw it at the wrong place. Draw it to realize that you've been set free from sin and you're now enslaved to Christ, which is true freedom. But you have to draw analogy at the right point. In the the book of Song of Solomon, where the man is praising the beauty of his wife, he says things like this, your neck is like a tower. If she draws the analogy that a tower is long, that's no longer a compliment. He's not saying she has this like gross giraffe neck. That's not his point. His point is her neck is strong. It's regal. It's beautiful. That's where you draw the analogy. Or when he says to her, listen to this one, ladies, your belly is a heap of wheat. He's not drawing the analogy on the word heap. That will get you slapped. He's drawing the analogy on wheat. Wheat is food. It's sustaining. It's filling. It brings life, okay? So you have to draw the analogy at the right point. This is also true, by the way, when we talk about God, okay? When it talks about God's mighty right hand, God doesn't have a hand. He's spirit. He's everywhere. The analogy is not that he looks like a person. The analogy is that he's strong. We know what it's like to have a strong hand, and so God is strong. You have to draw the analogy at the right point. Or when God, uh, you know, shelters us under his wings. He's not a huge hen, That's not where you draw the analogy. All language used of God in the Bible is analogous. When it talks about God loving, that is not the same as us loving. When it talks about God's wrath, that is not the same as our wrath. God is an entirely other being. And so every time the Bible says something about him, it uses analogical analogy, uses these analogies of him, okay? But what Paul is saying is, you are a slave. Don't let that confuse you. The point is, you're now a slave to Christ, which is actually a good thing. Verse 19 again. 
I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When sin was your master, you said, here I am, master sin. Use me as you want. When you become a Christian, though, you say, here I am, Jesus. Use me as you want. I've written you a blank check. Whatever you want in my life, it's yours. And that's what it looks like. What it means here is that your body that used to be used for fornication is now used to please your spouse. It means your bank account, which used to be used just on you, is now spent on others. It means your mind that used to think anxious thoughts now thinks true biblical thoughts. It means your eyes, which used to look at pornography, are now used to read Bible pages. It means your heart, which used to hate people, now prays for people that you don't like. When you have a new master, you present yourself to that master to be used however that master wants, and your master has changed from being sin, death, and the devil to being Christ and grace and freedom, all right? I want to end today by talking about Navy SEALs. If you're new to Parkway, I love Navy SEALs. It's like Jesus, my family, Navy SEALs, okay? Uh, Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. There's a point to this as well. So I I really wish that I uh, had gotten a chance to try to be a Navy SEAL. What I love about it is the intensive training. The first thing that you have to do if you want to be a SEAL is you go through something called basic underwater demolition SEAL training. It stands for, it's BUDS is the uh, kind of acronym. And it is super difficult. After you graduate from that, you are not a Navy SEAL. It takes another six months after that, but it's a six-month program just to beat you up. 90% of the people that enroll in that don't make it through. So if you start with a class of 200, your graduating class will have 20. It is super difficult. And these guys are already really tough that are coming in there. They're really aggressive, et cetera. So anytime I meet somebody who's a Navy SEAL, I ask them, how did you get through buds? How did you do it? And so I've talked to several different ones. I used to work with a guy who was a Navy SEAL. His name actually was Melvin, which is not a very good Navy SEAL name, right? A good Navy SEAL name is like Stryker. Melvin's kind of like janitor in the Coast Guard kind of name. Uh, I have another friend that actually goes to a community group here at Parkway who's a Navy SEAL. And one of the things I'll ask them is I'll ask them, how did you get through this? And they'll give me a bunch of tips, but here's one of the things that they've pretty consistently said. They said this. They said, in that moment when you're wanting to quit and everything just in your mind and in your body screams to quit, you can't do it. They said, what we do is something called self-talk. We take a true sentence and we repeat it over and over in our mind to help fight those feelings that we can't do it. And I said to one of my buddies, what did you tell yourself? He said, my self-talk, the thing I would say is just one more. When you're doing 1,000 push-ups, you can't think to yourself, I've got 600 more. You have to think to yourself, just one more. I'm not trying to do 1,000, just one, just one more. And he would tell himself that over and over again. There's another Navy SEAL, a guy named Mark Devine, that wrote a book called Unbeatable Mind, and he said that the self-talk, the sentence that he would say to himself when he was feeling tired was this, feeling good, looking good, ought to be in Hollywood. That was the sentence. So he's running, and he's tired, and he's like, man, I'm going to drop out. I don't know what I can do. And he tells himself, nope, feeling good, looking good, God ought to be in Hollywood. Now, think about what they're doing in that moment. They're having thoughts of failure, of quitting, of fatigue, and instead, they're replacing them with true thoughts, with powerful thoughts, and they tell themselves, they tell themselves those thoughts until they believe it's true. You tell yourself enough, feeling good, looking good, ought to be in Hollywood, enough when you're running and you start to think, I can do this. I can make it through this run. And so as I was talking to my buddy about this, it was really interesting because I found a lot of spiritual parallels in that. That when the weight of the world is on our shoulders, when we're doubting, when we feel condemned, when we're angry, 
when we're tempted to commit some form of lust, it's the same kind of thing. And so what I want to do is I want to give you some biblical thoughts to think about, some biblical self-talk to fight those evil things. And you tell these things to yourself until you believe them. Let me give you a few. I'm forgiven for all my sins, past, present, and future. I'm forgiven for all my sins, past, present, and future. You're feeling condemned. You don't feel like God loves you. You still remember some time in the past where you committed this terrible act in college or whatever. You repeat to yourself, like a Navy SEAL, I'm forgiven for all my sins, past, present, and future. Here's another one. I don't have to carry this. That's something I tell myself often. I don't have to carry this. You've got something that you're stressed about, something that you're anxious about, something that just consumes all your thoughts. I don't have to carry this. This isn't my burden to carry. Here's another one. God's got this. Everything is going to be okay. God's got this. Everything is going to be okay. God's got this. Everything is going to be okay. Here's another one, some self-talk when you're feeling crushed, when you're feeling like you're in despair, when you're struggling. Jesus loves me regardless of how I feel. Jesus loves me regardless of how I feel. Here's another one you can give yourself. Hell is no longer a reality for me. You're feeling condemned? Let's be clear. Hell is a reality. It is a real thing. But for the Christian, it's no longer a reality. Your punishment's already been paid. God doesn't do double jeopardy. God's wrath's already been poured out on Christ for you. Hell's no longer reality for me. Or this one, God is strong and he loves me. What do I have to fear? If both those things are true, God is strong so he can do whatever he wants, and he loves me, then what do I have to fear? If the most powerful being in the universe is also the most loving being in the universe and he's for me, everything else is less strong than him, so I have nothing to fear. And here's one more. I don't have to commit this sin. I'm free. I don't have to commit this sin. I'm free. You're driving down the road, you see a scantily clad woman on a billboard, and you start thinking lustful thoughts, you stop and you say, I know it feels that way, but I'm not enslaved to sin, I'm free. I don't have to commit this sin, I'm free. That's how you help fight it. We're commanded to renew our mind with the truth of the gospel. All of Romans 6 is simply this message, ready? Be what you are in Christ. Walk in holiness, how? By going back to true theology. God already sees you as holy, and it's through understanding that that you actually grow in holiness. But it's already happened. You're already forgiven. You're already loved. We don't work for grace. We work from grace. Let's pray as the volunteers helping serve communion come forward. Father, we come before you only because of your eternal Son, eternally begotten, And by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is eternally spirated from the Father and the Son, we thank you that you are our Trinitarian God. We ask right now, as uh, we partake of communion, that you would remind us of the cross, that you would remind us of grace, that you would remind us of forgiveness, that you would remind us of love, that when we feel like we're going to quit, when we're exhausted, when we don't feel like we can do this anymore and we just want to throw in the towel on our Christianity, instead, you help us remember, I'm forgiven, I'm loved. I'm accepted. Help us preach the gospel to ourselves. Help us believe what's already true of us in Christ. It's in his name. Amen.